Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 6, 2021, and my guest is philosopher Jennifer Frey of the University of South Carolina. Our topic for today is a recent essay she wrote for The Point. The title of the piece is The Universe and the University. We're going to talk about education, happiness, philosophy, the university, and maybe even the universe. Jennifer, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Me too. Now, you open your piece with what I would call a critical appraisal of psychology's approach to happiness relative to how philosophy approaches the question. What's the difference? Just forget which is better in your mind or what's, what, 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 why are the, what, what's, what's the difference there? Right. Well, I suppose I would start off by saying that philosophers don't agree about anything, and they also don't agree about how to conceive happiness. So when I talk about, you know, when I speak qua philosopher, um, you know, I'm not speaking for all members of my tribe. Um, but in, in psychology, you do see a, a fairly stable concept of happiness, and it is completely subjective. Now, there are different ways that you can subjectively conceptualize or operationalize happiness, um, but according to all three of them, it will come down to a set of psychological states. So you can have a really simple kind of hedonism where happiness is just pleasure, right? So happiness is just when you have um, an abundance of pleasure versus pain states, uh, maybe across a period of time, um, there are slightly more sophisticated theories where you don't just look at pleasure and pain, but you also look at positive emotional affect. Maybe you also consider mood and things like that. But at the end of the day, you just want to be able to say that someone has um a net balance of positive as opposed to negative emotional affect. And then the most sophisticated kind of theory that you get, um, these kind of life satisfaction views, where if, if you look at the questions that they give to people, um, you know, all, all of these people get their data from self-reports. Um, but if you look at the life satisfaction views, they're asking people to make a cognitive assessment about how they think their life is going on the whole, either like right now or over some period of time. Um, and, you know, that sounds objective, but it's not, right? Because all you have is the subjective cognitive assessment. And we know that people under conditions of oppression right, can say that they're very happy. Um, and there is no objective third personal measure against which we um, evaluate these cognitive assessments. We just say, well, they feel satisfied with their lives. Uh, and so they're happy. So all of these are forms of subjectivism, right? They all come down to how you feel about uh, about how you feel in some sense subjectively, and there's no objective component. Now, the view of happiness that I, and, and by the way, uh, a lot of philosophers 
um, like my colleague Dan Habern, um, will just accept one of these subjectivist conceptions of happiness, um, and then maybe talking about something else, which they call well-being. So Dan Habern um, makes happiness a component of well-being, where well-being is something objective that you can measure. Um, components of well-being would be like health, educational access, you know, maybe you put happiness as a part of that. Um, so plenty of philosophers are happy to just take the psychological conception of happiness and run with it. Um, I am not <laughs> because um, I think there's a big difference between how you feel and how you ought to feel um, given your objective circumstances and also given your character, right? The kind of person that you are. And I believe that um, someone with a bad character, someone who is... Um, you know, lacks the virtues like wisdom and justice and temperance and fortitude um, can feel really good doing bad things. An unjust person feels good, um, you know, and acting in an unjust way because they're greedy, right? So they're getting what they want. But the trouble is that there's a gap between what they want and what they ought to want. And so the view that I favor, uh, you can find throughout what I'll just call um, the perennial philosophy, you know, starting from the ancient Greeks and and going all the way up into contemporary uh, thought. And that is the idea that happiness is tied to virtue, right? So there, um, so you can think of the Greek concept of eudaimonia. Um, there is no perfect English translation of that. I think the most literal translation would be blessedness or godlike. Um, but I think the happier translation is flourishing. We talk about mm -hmm. human flourishing. We talk about we're it all talking, the time on this program. Yep. Yes. So we're talking about something objective, right? We can look at a human life and we can say that it is flourishing or it's not, but that we can't just evaluate this in terms of discrete, isolated components like, oh, are they well-educated? Do they have shelter? Do they have this subjective thing called happiness? Um, we have to look at the kind of person that they are. Um, and so we have to look at their character and how their character can be expressed in their objective circumstances. And sometimes what happens is that your objective circumstances are so bad that you can't, you can't cultivate or express virtue. And so then, of course... We don't attack you um, or we don't only attack you or blame you. We have to look at your circumstances. But when I talk about happiness, I'm talking about uh, reaching your potential as a human person through the cultivation and expression of virtues. So most people, I think, would say, well, that's not happiness. That's morality. But before we get to that, I wanna, we're, I'm going <laughs> to ask you to defend it. But, but first, a couple of things. Uh, first, Dan Habern has been a, a guest on Econ Talk talking about happiness. Uh, listeners are, are – Encouraged to go listen to that episode. Uh, we'll put a link up to it for, in this one, and you can find it in our archives. But I think, um, and, and I agree with you, of course, about the self-reporting problem. But I think the psychologist would respond and say, "Well, so what? So it's self-reported. So I'm living an illusion. Let's say I'm a I'm a virtueless person. I only seek pleasure. I'm a hedonist, a, a hedonist, a pure hedonist. I'm I like food." I like drinking. I like sensual pleasure of all kinds. I care not a whit about my fellow human beings. I don't give to charity. I don't develop myself. Another key aspect to me, and I think to you, of human flourishing, I don't aspire. 
I'm happy with how I am. Leave me alone, and I'm a I'm a five out of five. What's wrong mm-hmm. with that? I mean, why isn't that? And someone else, let's say for whatever reason, either because they don't have access to good scotch, or their incomes <laughs> are really low and they can't afford it, uh, or they can't travel and leave lead the um, glamorous life uh, of jet setting to Monaco. Those people, there are two and a half or three. Um, you know, somebody has children, and their children are really easy to raise, so they're four point seven. Somebody else is, for whatever reason, nothing to do with their own circumstances, their own life, their own choices. They get children that are hard to raise, and so their subjective affect, their happiness, their moods are all low. They're like a two point three. What's wrong with that as a measure of something? Isn't that something we should care about? And isn't that what psychologists would say is what we mostly care about? And therefore, it's a really important thing to measure. Right. So I suppose that I want to acknowledge very happily that we should care about your subjective psychological condition. We just shouldn't divorce it from objective reality. And the problem with pure subjectivism is that it does that. Um, So if you look at the truth. Let me challenge that, Jennifer. Let's suppose I'm an idiot. I'm a, I'm leading a life of illusion. I'm actually miserable, but when, when, but I feel happy. It's subjective, and I give I give my score on this on this survey a five. What's wrong with that? Why would my object? What's a more what? Who cares that it's not objective? It's what I feel. Well, I suppose that I care because I care about human flourishing, and we know that people under conditions of oppression can come to feel satisfied with those conditions. But I think in response to that, we should help those people um, and and not just let them continue to live under conditions of oppression. So, I mean, my interest is in helping people reach their potential as human beings and to flourish. And I don't believe that this is adequately measured purely subjectively. So the view that I favor has a subjective component. So if you are living a a U-diamond life or a flourishing life, um, it would be weird if that were just sheer torture all the time. Um, and, and, And on the whole, it's not. However, um, I would also say that it's not all cheerfulness um, and singing around the campfire either, right? Um, Because what it is to have fortitude, for example, um, isn't just to be cheerful or to feel good, right? So there is a kind of um, seriousness or gravitas about eudaimonia that also doesn't get captured in the purely subjective view. I mean, if you actually look at, um, and and, and I have, because for years I've worked with people in the social sciences, uh, colleagues in the social sciences, and I've learned so much from them. Um, But if you look at some of the uh, assessments that they're using, it's very crude. I mean, sometimes they just give you a range of emoticons to choose from. And that is leaving out the complexity of human emotion and the complexity and depth of of real human lives. And another reason that I care is all of this gets tied to public policy, right? And so it really matters when we are talking about crafting public policy around uh, massive data sets that I don't think are quite measuring the right thing. 
um, then, then I think, you know, we're, we're in some serious trouble. And I should also say that, um, while I have some criticisms of my colleagues and the social sciences, I, I really do think that there's a lot of good work, a lot of good interdisciplinary work. And ultimately what my essay is gesturing towards is a different model of knowledge creation that is fundamentally interdisciplinary and rooted in philosophy. <laughs> um, and, you know, if you look, for example, at the Human Flourishing Project that's been going on at Harvard right now in the med school um, run by um, Matthew Lee and Tyler Vanderweel, like they're doing amazing work. Um, you know, they are trying to take on board philosophical and theological critiques of their own disciplines and trying to re-operationalize what they measure accordingly. And so that's the kind of you know, we only do that when we have interdisciplinary discussions and we can have a back and forth. Yeah, I'm all for that. Um, I want to talk about something that came up in the recent episode with um, with Paul Bloom. At least I think it's the recent episode. It could, could be the future episode, but I've already recorded it. it came out, I recorded <laughs> right. it, yes, a couple days ago. It's recent it for you. It can be confusing, yeah. Um, but we talked about an example that, that comes up in your essay as well. It's the experience machine. Uh, of Nozick, where he imagines a world where you lay down on a table, you hook yourself up to the experience machine, uh, you can program it, although Paul didn't talk about this, but you can program it to, to be whatever fulfills your your fantasies, your desires, your imagination, and it will feel real while you're mm-hmm. un- hooked up to the machine, except you're just lying there. So you'll become president of the United States, you'll cure cancer, you'll win the Nobel Prize in literature, you'll win the NBA championship with a three-pointer at the buzzer, all that stuff. <laughs> and, you'll, and you'll feel inside your brain all the thrills that those achievements would cause, deep satisfaction, exhilaration, and so on. But in fact, you'll just be lying on the table. It'll feel like a normal life when you're in, on the machine. But eventually, uh, your life will end, and they'll unplug you, and that will be it. And nothing will have actually happened. You'll have just led a, a purely non-real existence. And Paul suggested that no one would hook themselves up to that machine. At least that was Nozick's original claim. Uh, Paul conceded that in modern times, after Nozick wrote it, maybe some people actually would hook themselves up to the machine. But I think it gets up gets to your point about objective and subjective reality in a different way than you were making it about, say, self-assessment, that it seems to me, as human beings, we would care about what actually happens in the real world, not just what happens inside our brain, and therefore that life on the machine would be quite sterile. But you mentioned Laurie Santos of Yale, who, at least the way I read in your essay, would say, no, that'd be great. Then I'd be happy all the time. You know, I'd have a lot of happiness, a lot of satisfaction relative to pain. You could even have some obstacles in the machine that you would overcome to get the Nobel Prize in literature and so Mm -hmm. on. Um, Mm -hmm. So reflect on that. Yeah, so she did. Um, She bit the bullet, and I was actually pretty surprised um, that she – that she did, but I think that she saw correctly that her commitments kind of force her to. So, you know, because I was, so I, I had gone to Yale um, to have a dialogue or a debate with Lori. Um, I think it was called Virtues, uh, or I think it was called Morality, like Virtues or Life Hacks. 
because Lori has this, um, she has this very famous class called Psychology and the Good Life, in which she promises students um, that she's going to teach them life hacks um, that are going to help them hack themselves, um, which is basically like little techniques for manipulating yourself into performing better across a range of life activities. And I was pushing back and saying, you know, virtue can't be reduced to technique Um, because virtue is a transformation of the whole person. It's a way of seeing the world and deliberating and feeling and thinking. And, um, and so we were having this exchange and she was like really hitting hard that, no, it is just about the brain. I mean, she's a cognitive scientist. (laughs) Um, she's like, no, it's, it's just about the brain and, Um, you really just need to get your brain in the right condition. And so that's when I brought up the experience machine and she was like, no, I would get in it. Um, she's like, because right, that would be happiness. You know, if I could somehow get rid of all the world's problems and just be happy, like, obviously I would. And I wasn't very surprised and kind of thrown back on my heels when she said that, because it was supposed to kind of be it was supposed to be a reductio that kind of reoriented the conversation, but it didn't turn out that way. And, um, you know, to me, that's a very dystopian move. And I well, think it's not, you know, that we, we're, we're talking about the, the experience machine, of course, but we could talk about drugs. That <laughs> you know, The experience machine doesn't exist. It's a thought experiment. But certainly uh, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley is about SOMA, a drug that, that gives people, you know, just – and what we, what would you call it? Uh, bliss, just a yeah, feeling of bliss. Of that just what it gives you is positive emotional affect. Correct, exactly. So um, I find that repellent personally. I, I'm just being honest, right? It's not. I don't, right. It's not a scientific uh, assessment, and and I think I don't want that for my children. Another uh, right. issue that that Paul raised in, in talking about this. I don't want my children to be, quote, happy. I don't want to be unhappy, as you said. It's not the only thing. It's not that it doesn't matter, but there are other things that matter. Virtues, meaning, purposefulness, devotion, um, self-improvement, et cetera, that I think do matter. Uh, but, right. but, but many psychologists don't, evidently, or some psychologists no. don't. Well, I mean, it's just how they've operationalized this concept that they're studying. And I think they've operationalized it in the wrong way because it's out of joint with human nature. And human nature cannot be reduced to brain states. Um, and and also what's get, what gets lost on this view is your connection to other people. And this is a huge deficit. And so one of the things that I talk about in my more academic work, I'm not sure that it came up in this essay, is that another problem with the subjectivist framework is that it only measures an individual's psychology. But there's something very misleading about that because what's going on with my individual psychology is very deeply connected to the people that I'm in social relationships with, right? right? So that includes my loving relationships, my family and my friendships and my neighbors and my communal associations, but then also my political relationships. Um, And so now we're in the realm of, you know, something like philia, (laughs) according to the ancient tradition. And um, that all kind of drops out in some important sense. And that is um, that is not an insignificant loss when we're talking about human flourishing. I mean, I think 
right, that human flourishing is a common good. It's not something, right? So it's not competitive. It's participatory, right? Um, And we bring it about and enjoy it together. And so like the fate of my happiness is in some important sense tied to yours. And that drops off on this view too. And, And I do think it leads to this idea where you're just an isolated unit alone, you know, just sort of being externally manipulated. And the reason that really worries me is because we are at a position now, technologically speaking, where it's not so much fantasy anymore. It's getting closer and closer to real life. And one of the problems that you see, um, especially with young people now, is that they are incredibly isolated. And that is a political social problem. And one thing that I find really concerning is that we're trying to provide medical solutions. So for example, at the University of Chicago right now, they are working on a pill for loneliness. Loneliness is a political moral problem. It should not be, you should not try to solve this problem through medicine. Not a pharmaceutical problem. We talked a lot, we've talked a few times on the program about grief and certainly uh, after a tragedy, a person can drug themselves, they can get drunk on alcohol and other types of drugs. My, my view is that grief is part of the human experience, and it's okay to experience grief. It's okay to be sad after someone you love dies. In fact, I would argue it's important to be sad after someone dies, and to pretend that that can be ameliorated or avoided is, I think, a mistake. Having said that, I don't think you should suffer in pain in, in surgery. I'm, you know, it's, This is not a question about um, you know, everything is na- – only natural things count. But I do think that ex- certain experiences of, of, of the humankind have, have a rich tapestry that is not just about feeling good. And I think that's – you know, obviously that, that's part of what you're talking about. I think I'd just say one quick thing about economics. Obviously, um, economists have their own way of thinking about these issues. I think also quite sterile um, in terms of, quote, utility maximization – and you know, my advisor, Gary Becker, certainly tried to enrich that model. He tried to enrich it by talking about the family, that my happiness would depend also on my wife's happiness or on my children's happiness. But it does that in a way – in Gary's hands, it wasn't so sterile. But you know, the narrow mathematics of it is pretty sterile still. It does not capture the rich nuance of the complexity of making sacrifices for the people around us possibly even, quote, lowering my happiness, although I care about them, so it's kind of tricky, by doing something for them that I, when I'd rather do something for myself. And the idea that sometimes that's the right thing to do, even though it makes me less happy. And I think yeah. many of us as human beings uh, aspire to doing the right thing for people we've made commitments to, uh, even though sometimes that will lower our happiness. And I think that's lost in these kind of conversations. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, and I, I, I mean, I just, I just think this is true, and I, and I hope at some point um, we can come to some kind of agreement about this. There is an ineliminable moral, spiritual dimension to human flourishing, and it, so you will never completely capture it by data. Um, and I think you that's said, fine. You said illuminable, meaning. Ineliminable, like you can't get rid of it, you know? Oh, okay. I mean, it will will always, there will always be a moral, spiritual dimension of this. And that's, that's good. That's fine. Um, And I mean, my own view about this is um, not that 
well, we must leave reflection on human flourishing to the philosophers. That's not my view. Um, however, I, I do feel that philosophers and even theologians, that's something else that I argue in my, in my yeah, essay. We're going to get to that. Um, yeah, they need to have a seat at the table and they need to be part of the conversation. Um, and they do actually need to be involved also in public policy discussions because there is this moral, spiritual aspect of human flourishing because we're talking about human beings and you can't reduce human beings to something that can be understood in quantificational terms. Now, that's not to say that we don't need data because we do need data. I think we need better data than yeah, we currently sure. have, um, but we just can't, um, we can't be satisfied just by looking and analyzing data in the way that we currently are. So let's talk a little bit about theology. I want to come later to your claims about theology and role it might play in the university, and we're going to get to the university as well. But let me just try to take a, a contrarian approach to these issues of spirituality that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your article that your essay that you're a Roman Catholic. Listeners know I'm I'm a religious Jew. Uh, let me play the contrarian who says that's a bunch of nonsense. It's a bunch of bunkum hokum, whatever you want to call it. Those are just things that those are superstitions that lower your happiness level. Someone like me who doesn't um, get in a car on the Sabbath, who won't um, go shopping on the Sabbath. You're just lowering your happiness level. If you have an urge to go shopping, you should just go. Why? And then the economists say, well, there's some other happiness produced by the lack of shopping because it creates a feeling of community. And that, that may be true. I think it is somewhat true. But a religious Jew would not shop even if it makes them totally miserable and they don't get any thrill out of the community feeling that it produces right. because they think it's the right thing to do. So what the, what the secular psychologist would say is you're just you're just you, you need some different settings on your real life experience machine you could have more happiness you could be a, a cheerful more cheerful person you could have more pleasure in your life if you didn't follow these ridiculous strictures that come from a tradition that is not scientific has no observable objective reality which you jennifer said you were in favor of but in fact it's just nonsense and you'd be a happier person without it how do you answer that Kind of a tough question on one foot. I apologize. It's not. No, I'm it's not asking, fine. It's a it's great not a question. Twitter. It's not a. At least it's, we're not on Twitter. You give it at least, you know, more than 280 characters or whatever Twitter is these days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So no, I think it's a great question. Um, I will say that it's just the claim that you'd be happier if you weren't religious is not at all borne out by the data that we have. Now, I don't want to solely rely on that data, <laughs> but that's right. But I mean, the data that we have says the opposite. Right. So people who practice a religion um, score way higher on measures of meaningfulness and purposefulness of, of life and also happiness. Right. So it's not borne out by the data. Maybe if we had better data, it would be borne out. You know, that's that's um, that's obviously an empirical question. But um, the, the truth is, you know. Um, that, well, I mean, I think that man is a religious animal. And that means that um, even if they are not a member of an organized religion, they usually find some kind of substitute for it. There's a lot of interesting work 
um, being done right now in sociology about people um, who are secular, right? Sort of like on the books, but like they're really into crystals and they, like, like, like they do all this other stuff that looks like it's fulfilling. Or politics. It looks, it looks like it's fulfilling the need that you know, organized religion used to fill in their life. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in, in those studies and thinking more about it. But, um, you know, um, it's <laughs> the idea that, I mean, now, now we're sort of veering off into some theological questions, like whether or not religion is superstition. Religion is traditionally conceived as a virtue, right? It's a practice of rendering to God what is owed to him through worship, right? Through divine worship, through tithing. So we're talking about, I mean, uh, Aquinas, for example, puts religion as a proper part of justice, right? Because justice generally is giving to another what is owed to them. Um, Why do we owe something to God? Because he's the source of all being, right? So you wouldn't exist without God. So it seems like you, seems like you should be grateful. Um, Now, whether or not there needs to be a principal source of all being is both a philosophical and a theological question. Um, We could get into that. That was the traditional inquiry called (laughs) metaphysics, Um, but that would take us too far afield. But I don't believe that, um, I don't believe that religion per se is superstitious, obviously, um, I think crystal worship probably is uh, deeply superstitious, um, but we'd have to we'd have to get into what superstition is versus no, what is true religion. No, we don't. I don't want to get into is, that. And I and I, and yeah. I want to make I want to reiterate your point, which I agree with. That I think um, I think listeners have heard me say this before, quoting David Foster Wallace: "Everyone worships. Just a question of what they worship." I think exactly. that's the shorthand way of saying what you're saying. That we have this. In our nature, an urge to belong, to transcend uh, our, our earthly limitations, and it could be, you know, evolution put that in us, or God put it in. You know, I'm, we're not going to we're not going to go there. But but I do think there is a fundamental question as a scholar, as a person in the academy, which both of us are in, in different ways right now for me than maybe for you. But whether once you're in a college or a university. You know, I think we have a an obligation to to take these questions seriously, and I yes. think it's a legitimate viewpoint, even though I don't agree with it. That just says, uh, "What's pleasurable is all there is." That's a legitimate. I don't agree with it, but I think that's a legitimate viewpoint. And I can't really judge someone. I mean, I, I can tell someone, "Oh, you might find more meaning in your life if you did some." acts beyond your your sense of self if you were kinder if you volunteered i have no problem with suggesting to people that 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 charity or altruism of various kinds and we debate how whether it's really charity or not i'm not gonna we're not gonna talk about that here but the you know i think it's okay to say to someone you're missing out but if they try it they don't like it i would be uneasy saying they're missing out and if they want to pursue a life of hedonism and enjoying life to the limits, you know, within the law and not harming anyone, I kind of just want to say, well, that's your choice. Where where I agree with you is that, you know, as we, as we, I think, very foolishly try to base public policy around increasing our score as a nation from a 4.1 to a 4.3 like Finland, I think that Mm -hmm. is, is fake science. I think it's scientism. I think it's dangerous. And I think it fundamentally misunderstands the human experience. 
but mainly because, as you said, it's a nuanced experience, the idea that I can capture my lifetime or the last week even or even yesterday with a number is an illusion. I had some good moments, some bad moments, some moments of anxiety, some moments of delight, some moments of contentment, some moments of fear. The idea that I can add those all up, which was Bentham's you know, intellectual enterprise, I think that was an utter failure as an intellectual enterprise. And I think he understood that at the end of his life when he was trying to find a, a, a way to make these things comparable, and he couldn't. And economists just, just pretend that you can. They just say, well, you know, if you choose to spend your day at the beach instead of volunteering at the food shelter, obviously that gave you a higher level of happiness, and that's how we're going to define it. And that's purely subjective, and that's all that matters is because that's what matters for your choice. And in that part, the economist had something right. Reveal preference when you go out and make a choice. You're saying to the world or to yourself what you value. But to pretend that it has an objective value because you chose it subjectively and therefore public policy should be, be based on maximizing it or something, that's where the lunacy occurs. But I have no problem with the subjective idea that whatever floats your boat floats your boat. Whatever floats my boat floats mine. I might choose to you know, become a – I might choose to become a triathlete even though it doesn't really do anything for the world except makes me feel good about myself or it's a challenge. I want to overcome it. That's part of the human flourishing also. I, I just think – I want to take a very open view of this, and but it's where public policy comes in that I think it's it's um, it starts to matter, and to pretend that it's scientific because it's a four point three versus a four point one is where I think it's dangerous. And yeah, you can react to any of that you want. Well, I mean, I I guess I'm less comfortable with subjectivism <laughs> uh, than you are, sure, um, which is fine. Um, you know, I I do believe that we should be encouraging people. Um, in, in a variety of ways um, to engage um, in practices and, uh, you know, ways of, of being that contribute to the common good. And I think that we can talk about that at a sufficiently general level that we can reach a lot of agreement about what that might look like. And, um, you know, that doesn't mean that we're banning things or, or, or something like that. Um, and, and with respect to the university in particular, because that's where I live and breathe for the most part, um, what I'm really arguing for at the end of the day is, um, you know, liberal, liberal learning. And I think that what has happened is there has been a kind of illiberal pushing out of theology faculties from the university, which has meant that that's, that's right. And that has meant that there has been a pushing out of a dimension of human life. Right. Um, because you know, the, the thing is human beings do seek transcendence, self-transcendence. There's a ton of empirical work on this. That is really fascinating. Um, and you know, People like like young people do want to understand how they relate to God. Um, that and they, you know, I think that you can have knowledge about that. Um, and I think that insofar as the university is the institution that more than any other institution shapes our conception of worthwhile knowledge, um, we ought to have theology faculties in our universities. And I talk about my personal experience working on uh, long-term multi-million dollar projects involving, 
you know, theologians from all faith traditions, philosophers, and different social scientists. And um, the thing is, it 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 does work. <laughs> um, and it's also something that they are doing at Harvard right now as well. And so I think that there are models for this that we can imitate that have shown themselves to be successful. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, we, we should be going for the most universal kinds of knowledge. And, and so theology should, should be a part of that because. Well, let's stay away from theology for a minute. We're going to come back to it, but let's just talk about philosophy because I think a lot of listeners are going to say, look, I don't believe in God. I don't think it's part of the human experience. I don't think it's important. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to judge them. Um, I'm going to leave that alone at least for now, uh, for our conversation. Let me just ask about philosophy. So Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, It was my high school yearbook quote, it turns out. I've always liked that quote. Uh, I'm at a college, Shalem College in Jerusalem, where the examined life is at the heart of what we do. We have a two-year core curriculum where they read Plato and Aristotle and Homer and et cetera, and we do a lot of examining here. And I think it's glorious, and it's a huge part of what it takes to lead a meaningful life and a purposeful life and human flourishing, so I'm a big fan of it. But one of our faculty, one of our uh, faculty, Yuval Delev, who's um, thoughtful, asked the question. He said, well, you know, I know a lot of people who don't examine their life, and they're really happy, and they're nice people. And I know some people who do examine their life all the time. Yeah, they're not so nice, and they can be pretty glum. <laughs> so, you know, would would you say that the examined life is a, is a necessary part of the human experience? Well, how would you answer someone who says, look, all this philosophy, malarkey, I'm – come up with one more crazy old-fashioned word for nonsense. Yeah, I don't need all that. I'm just happy. What am I missing? What do you right. got for me, Jennifer? I mean, what's the big? Why do I need a philosophy department at a at a college? I'm gonna I'm gonna go be an accountant. I'm gonna be a lawyer. Right. I'm gonna be a, a computer scientist. What do I need to know about this? This bunch of stuff that's never resolved anything. I'm just gonna I just don't I don't need to take any of that. I'm just gonna be happy. I'm gonna make a lot of money. I'm gonna get a good skill, good trade, and I'm gonna make have a good life. What's wrong? Anything wrong with that? Yeah, so I actually just addressed this topic to the Yale Political Union. I guess it was two weeks ago now. Um, And, you know, the idea is that, or at least the idea that I would favor, is that a university is a very special kind of institution. It's not a place where you simply receive vocational training. Um, Universities are supposed to be higher education. And higher certainly shouldn't just mean more advanced in years, right? So now it's higher education because it's my 14th year, my 15th year. Like that's not higher in any meaningful sense, right? Um, It ought to mean higher in terms of its aspirations or its goals, right? And so the goal of a university education, if it's truly higher education, ought to be liberal education, education that makes you free, right? And, you know, we can debate about what it means to be free, but I certainly believe that um, philosophical reflection is a part of that, a necessary part of that, um, that in order to be free, we need to go into ourselves and look at the world from a somewhat critical perspective um, and think about it. And that this is related to something like virtue and, and wisdom. And um, I think it's incredibly necessary. Now, 
here's where I'll say something even more controversial. I don't think that everybody needs to go to a university. I think for many people, I know, I know. That was the face of Michael Roth. (laughs) He's the president of Wesleyan. He wants everyone in universities. No, I mean, look, I'm from, I mean, we haven't talked really about who I am, but I'm from a working class background and the Rust Belt and the United States. The majority of my family um, never went to university. Um, My my father never went to university and I don't look down on him, right? Um, I, I don't think that I am so much better than him because I went to a university. Um, I believe that in a, in a perfectly flourishing human society, right, we have room. We, we in fact need to make space for university education. Um, and those would be people who we would hope would aspire to something like wisdom and we need wisdom and leadership, We don't need mere expertise. We need wisdom and leadership. Um, But we also need people who are vocationally trained. I think one thing that you find in the contemporary university landscape, or at least you find it in some places or you found it for a while was some kind of compromise where we have all kinds of vocational degrees, but we want to have something like a liberal arts, a two-year liberal arts core curriculum. So you might get a degree in hotel management um, but you did read some Plato and some stuff. Uh, you learned some math, et cetera. Um, however, I see that compromise kind of splitting apart, right? Oh, so yeah. it, almost outside of a almost, handful of places, it's gone. It's here right. at Shalem, but it's pretty much it's dead in the United States. Outside that's of right. A and of so, so what you have are universities where the vast majority of the undergraduates are getting degrees in sports marketing or hotel tourism or things like this. There are very few math or philosophy majors. History, um, there is English, this, that right, many of those are, either. There are very few history majors. What you get are journalism majors. Don't get me yeah. started. But, um, and, you know, you you pay the same amount of money for your degree, you get the same degree, but we're talking about very different kinds of education here. And the the core curriculum has been so bastardized over the years that it's really just kind of a joke to call it a liberal arts education. Um, and so I think we really need to, we, we really need to stop and think, think about what we're doing here. You know, if you are getting a degree in hotel management, why does it need to cost so much money and take four years? This is, I mean... Well, my, my corner baker here in Jerusalem got a degree in hotel management in the United States, and she's a fantastic baker. And I don't know how long it took her, but God bless her. And she learned something. She, you know, she, she uh, worked at a number of, of resorts and learned how to make phenomenal things, and I'm sure she could run a hotel. Uh, so these things have value, obviously. You're not saying they don't have value. They do. It's a question they of, absolutely have value. But I think that. I think that's but it's a crucial not, question. It's not higher education. That's my point. So I agree with that. I, I, I don't – I agree with you that I think it's a horrible idea to think everyone should go to college for a whole bunch of reasons we don't, we're not going to go into. But I think that the real question is the core curriculum that we're talking about, you said it's been bastardized, and, and I think it's dead. Uh, I, and I think the reason I think – the reason I think it's dead is there aren't enough people like you – it may be like me. Uh, again, I'm taking a different approach, but uh, they gave up the field, right? 
the other profession, the other discipline said, what we do is important, whether it's hotel management, whether it's marketing uh, in a business school, whether it's accounting in a business school, whether it's legal skills in a law school. Look, we give, we give our students something of value, which is the ability to make a living, which is not unimportant. So I don't, I don't want to ever uh, be critical of that. Nothing wrong with that. It's great. You're suggesting uh, that there's a value to philosophy. There's a value to answering not answering, because many of these questions don't have answers, but asking deep questions and grappling with them. That's what I believe great education is about. It's learning how to think. It's not being told a set of skills or how to acquire those skills or to encourage expertise in a particular area. It's about the growth of one's critical faculties, the ability to communicate, the ability to see connections, to synthesize a lot of different aspects of what I think great education is. And most American colleges have said that's not what we do. And the practitioners of the disciplines that you respect and and that I respect, the philosophy department, the English department, the history department, it's not that they're lonely because nobody wanted their product. They stopped providing the product. They decided for whatever reason, you know, it's complicated. Some of it's political, ideological. Some of it's demand and supply and demand. They don't think that – they don't make the case anymore. It's a handful of people, many of them guests here on Econ Talk, people like Zena Hitz and Agnes Callard and Leon Cass, my, the dean of faculty here at Shalem, when he talked about what's a good life. There's a small cadre of people who argue, hey, hey, folks, there's some meaning here that you might value. And I think that's what we should provide. In a, in, a, in a great college, a great university. And for some reason, most people are uncomfortable making that claim. Either they can't make it convincingly to themselves, or they can't make it out to the world at large because the world at large doesn't care about those things anymore. Uh, they think they're, for whatever reason, not of value. So I think we have failed. Those of us who care about human flourishing, whether it's religiously based or Greek philosophy based, which is not particularly religious, we haven't made the case so well lately, and so people don't come and and we don't provide the product that we that we're talking about anymore in those departments. So people don't want it; they can't have. They don't, they're not interested. They go do these other things. I think there's a chance to revive these areas, right? When people read the Iliad, the Odyssey, even though they're probably not literally true, uh, the dialogue is probably created by the author Homer. <laughs> he didn't transcribe it or record it. He didn't take notes. We can't hold him accountable, but there's deep truth in there. And that's why we think it's a value. There's deep truth in philosophical examination. And I think that's what's been lost in the, in the universities today. We've given up on this idea that there's truth to be gathered from these examinations and explorations that are more complicated and, and less satisfying in the short run than some of the sciences, engineering, math, STEM, and so on. And I think that's what, where we failed. React to that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, so I, I agree. It's, it's a mess. Um, I think some of it's institutional. So I think some of it is that if you're at an R1 research university, like I am, all of the institutional. What do you mean by R1? Uh, R1 is just a research university designation. So um, it, it's, 
it is usually tied to how much um, publish and research. perish. Publish or perish. Yes, that's that's a good way to put it. Okay. So, for example, for me to get tenure, my teaching means very little. Um, of course, it's a part of it, but I mean, so long as I'm not a kind total disaster. It's kind of pretend. It's not really a it's, part of it. <laughs> it is really a bit pretend. I'm not going to lie. And I'll say um, it. You don't have to say it. It's okay. Yeah. So it's my research, right? And it's and it's very uh, quantitative, you know, sort of measure of my output. Yep. And so you are pressured from your second year of undergrad on, because if you want to go to grad school, you got to start to specialize. Once you're in grad school, you have to hyper-specialize. That is a very bad model. That might be great for the sciences. That's a horrible model for philosophy, since philosophy aspires to wisdom. Um, The best philosophers were never specialists. So, um, I think there are these institutional pressures, and I talk about this in my essay, but there's also broader pressures. You know, there are market pressures. Universities have taken on um, a financial model where they're extremely dependent on tuition dollars. A lot of that's political because, you know, I'm a public university, but we get 9% of our budget from our state. 9%. It's nothing. Like, we're functionally private. That'll shock and people so, who don't realize that. I assume most people listening would assume that a public college like the University of South Carolina, 50 to 80% of her costs are covered by government no, revenue that, that you collect from taxpayers. Nine. Low nine. number. Yeah, low number. The rest of it's nine. coming from government grants, though. There's some government in there, just not not the legislature's um, direct That's funneling. That's right. Federal of, grants, yeah, right? Yeah. From, Health, you know. uh, research, medicine. That's right. That's right. The NIS, the NIH, the NEH, stuff like this. But um, no, we have a very bad deal in this state. We have a lot of government control and very little government support. Um, So, so, you know, there's, there's that sort of thing. But I also think and increasingly am devoting huge amounts of my time to um, colleges, right, can only do so much. The university can only do so much. We have to look at K through 12 education. We have to look at what has happened in K through 12 education. And K through 12 education has been completely dominated by the skill model. And so we we get these enormous classes of incoming students that have only ever been taught discrete skills. And they have no sense of the intellectual life, the life of the mind, They think the whole thing is career-oriented. And we as a university, given our financial model, are beholden to them as consumers. Like, we have to please them. So every year at my university, we, like, brag. We have new majors. You can major, major in insurance risk management at my university. You can major in that. It's mind-blowing. So we have over 300 majors at this point. So, uh, again, I... I have to say, I, I think that's nuts for, for what – I don't think the citizens of South Carolina, the taxpaying citizens of South Carolina should even contribute 9% to that. I have nothing wrong with learning how to be an insurance person. It just shouldn't be done by the taxpayers' uh, largesse in any way. But, but I think the, the question – I want to push you back into a different corner. In your essay, you talk about you know, knowledge for its own sake. And so you can yes. think about two extremes, knowledge for its own sake – on the one hand, versus knowledge you can use, you know, knowledge that will make you money, knowledge that will help you get ahead. 
and a lot of, by the way, a lot of the life hacks that you were alluding to earlier from psychology and, uh, you know, they're, they're, that's what they're really about, by the way. You know, you can get more done if you could just wake up at 7 a.m. every morning and get, get a habit of waking up at the same time. You know, there's a whole bunch of these. I find them crazy. I find them offensive, actually. It's, you know, I've talked about it before in the program about meditation. The reason you should meditate, uh, it'll make you more productive at work. It'll be great. Or I know. The reason you should keep the Sabbath, it'll recharge your batteries, and then you'll, you'll be more productive. It's like, really? That's the reason? I think that shows a really narrow, sterile, feeble vision of the human experience. So, so but, but at those two extremes, most people don't want to be on our extreme of knowledge for its own sake. Certainly, it doesn't justify federal or, or statewide expenditures. So that's number one. But number two, I, you know, I don't think it's for everybody. I don't think everybody should be sitting around, not gazing at their navel, but wondering about why we're here and, and the nighttime sky and why there's 10 to the 22nd stars in the, in the nighttime sky. And that seems kind of strange whether you, you know, whether you believe in evolution or God, it just it's mind-boggling and, and thought-provoking. And, and most people go like, who cares? And I, I, I get that. So I want you to make the case for why they should care. Like, so defend knowledge for its own sake. Most people would just say that's not just impractical, which it is by definition and by, <laughs> by construction. It's more than impractical. It's, it's a waste. And you, Jennifer, you go off and do your weird little – philosophical thinking and, and, and leave the rest of us alone. I'm going to go get my insurance degree and, and go make some money and, and raise my family and lead a good life. What do you yeah. think of that? Thank you for this question. This is a very important question. So one book, it's a small book uh, that I highly recommend to anyone is a book by Joseph Peeper called Leisure as the Basis, Leisure as the Basis of Culture. And book. I think he does... Yeah, it is a wonderful book. This this book totally changed my life. It's one of those life-changing books for me. And um, Pieper talks about this kind of ideology, this all-consuming ideology of workism, right? Where work is this space of productivity and instrumental value. Yep. And he's like, yeah, of course we need to work, right? We need to reproduce ourselves and keep going and we need stuff. He's like, but... If we don't leave space for leisure, for those things that our work is for, right, the things in which our life culminates in, right, then we ultimately are living a futile life, right? If I work to make money, to rest so that I can work more, to make money, to rest so that I can work more, and then one day I die, what kind of life is that? And I think people are not stuck. People are so consumed by workism, they don't stop to ask themselves this question, right? They work hard so they can escape from reality for a week and rest so that they can go back to working hard. But what are you working for, right? What things are really intrinsically valuable? What would you die for, right? And there is no, unless we have liberal learning, unless we live an examined life, we don't have answers to these questions. We don't know. And, you know, frankly, if you are consumed by workism, you're also not free. And so I do think we need to preserve a space for liberal education. We need to preserve a space for poetry, for philosophy, right? For the things that 
you know, for music, for the things that we work for, right? The things that are valuable in and of themselves. And um, I think that this kind of all-consuming, utilitarian, consumerist, workist mindset that we really are imbued with in our K through 12 education. And there really are a lot of problems there. Um, we need to remind people about what we're living for, right? What, 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 what will our lives culminate in? And, um, you know, I, I, I just think we need to fight for that space. We need to fight hard for it. Well, I encourage anyone who wants to escape workism, one small aspect of it, to move to Jerusalem where you, we don't have Amazon Prime. And when you don't have Amazon Prime, it really changes a lot. You can't just sort of say, oh, I could have that tomorrow. So I've spent a lot less time on Amazon, like an enormously smaller amount of time, which has freed me up to do other things. Because sometimes it's playing chess on my phone, which I try not to do too much of, another somewhat empty addiction I, I, I have, like workism or shopping, if I'm not careful. And I want to say, Jennifer, I think we've established here for most listeners that you're probably not the representative uh, American. You're probably a little bit unusual. And even though I really enjoyed Joseph Pieper's book, Leisure, many people would find it difficult. So as much as I like that book as well, I, I'm not sure all of our listeners will find it a riveting life changer. So I just want to say that first as a, as a warning. But it's a fascinating book. I am definitely book. weird. <laughs> I, a I am definitely weird. But it's a fascinating <laughs> book. I want to try a different approach. Uh, okay. I want to make a different case for, for learning for its own sake. Uh, and I, maybe this is circular. I don't know. I, I, you know I've made this argument before that – and I, I made this argument before that, that, say, being a parent is part of the human experience. So you don't have a child because it's fun. And you don't have a child because the net benefits outweigh the net costs. And you don't have a child – as a form of social insurance, even in a poor country, you have a child because it's part of being a human. Uh, not everybody's able to have a child. We understand that. There are many aspects of the human experience that are not available to every one of us, either because of our, the way we're born biologically or because of uh, our circumstances. But the reason to have a child is not to create happiness, to me. It's to be fully human. And to me, that's what flourishing is. So for me... When you say, what's the value of learning for its own sake, we are blessed for whatever reason. And again, people from different theological backgrounds or atheism will feel differently about this, but we have a brain. We're not like a horse. We have this opportunity to dream. We have an opportunity to aspire. We have an opportunity to feel. We have an opportunity to empathize. And so to me, you read great poetry, you listen to great music that breaks your heart, that makes you cry. Not because it makes you happy, but because it's part of what it is to be a human being. And I think that's glorious, and I think it's wonderful, and I also can see it's not for everybody. You know, if some people are tone deaf, and I don't mean that in a in the literal sense. Some people can't enjoy great music because they, their ears just biologically not able, available to do it. And some people can't have access to some of the transcendent things we're talking about, whether it's poetry or for whatever reason, because it just it doesn't speak to them because they can't hear it. And, and you, you can teach them. You can try to get them to hear it. You can try to open that window for them to see what we're talking about. But it doesn't work for them. Yeah, so I, I don't think that we really meaningfully disagree. I think maybe we are pitching it in a slightly different way. But, you know, another way to say what I'm saying is that 
a university education is higher insofar as it's ordered to human flourishing. It's carving a space for a particular kind of human excellence, right? Which is the life of the mind. Um, and, and, and that is a part of human flourishing and it does need to be preserved. And I think that people who really do flourish in the university have a certain, certain talents, certain dispositions. Um, you know, I, I have been a bookworm since I was four yeah. and I was very unlike. I am shocked I was, to hear that gentleman. <laughs> I mean, and it was like, it was like for a while, I mean, I, I really think it freaked my parents out because they didn't know why I was like different from other kids and why I just wanted to be in the library all the time. Like my favorite place on the planet as a kid was the library. That's where I was happy. That's where I was safe. And so of course I loved university life. Like It was amazing. Um, But not everybody is like that. And, um, and, and that's totally fine. Um, My father's not like that at all. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of opportunity costs for someone um, to spend these four years um, of higher education when they don't have the dispositions to excel at it. And, of course, we all know it's obscenely expensive. It gets more expensive every year. And part of that cost is what you said, the the foregone opportunities to do something else for the students who who choose it. It's not just the budgetary cost. That's right. And for vocational training should should take a much shorter time and and really just be oriented to the practical ends that it's oriented towards. Um, and, and just to pick up on another aspect of what you were saying, um, you know, I come out of a tradition, an intellectual tradition that sees the true, the good, and the beautiful as essentially connected. They're just different aspects of being. And um, so, yes, I mean, you know, a math proof can be beautiful, um, and can be very moving, right? Um, and, 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 and so can a symphony. Um, and so I think that, again, we want to think about higher education, liberal learning, um, as created towards these things in which, you know, human life kind of culminates in various forms of human excellence. And um, to call human excellence wasteful is is a dark moment. I mean, we, we should question that. <laughs> How is it a waste of a life to attain human excellence? No, that's a, that's what you want. Um, and, you know, but the university, it, it's not a one size fits all. It's a, it's a, you know, it, it, it's its own thing. It should be preserved. I think we agree about that. Yeah, um, and, I, and I think, I think you would agree with me. Maybe, maybe not, but we should all develop our, our, our gifts as much as we can. Some people get different gifts, and some of them are emotional, some of them are intellectual, some of them are physical. Um, we all have some intellectual gift, and we can develop that gift as much as we can. Not everybody can develop it to the same extent. Again, Andrew Weil, who proved Fermat's last theorem, he, he's, I'm not going to catch him. Right? We're not all going to be uh, NBA basketball players either. So all these different aspects of our humanity, and of course, Adding to that the fact that what we do for each other, both commercially and socially, matters. Our interactions with other people, our communities, those are all another piece of this flourishing part. And our mm-hmm. ability to to be a, 
a good spouse, a good friend, a good colleague. These are all parts to me of human flourishing that not the university is not going to work on all those. But in the intellectual part, and what we, we haven't talked about, which is weird, the search for truth. Right. Um, that's the part you should try to get better at if you want to be a fully realized human being. Not all of us are going to end up being uh, analytical philosophers, but we can all develop the part of our intellect that we have, and we develop it at our own rate, in our own way, and, and it's it's satisfying. It's it, We flourish. We feel our life has has some richness to it when we, when we, when we struggle and, and achieve something. Anyway, I, I right. think that's what it's about. I, I don't think it's about um, – I wouldn't say anything. I don't think more than that. Right. I mean, I thank you for bringing up the search for truth, right? Because I think one of the things that I've struggled the most with in having these conversations um, with people in various parts of higher ed, whether it's college presidents or other administrators or even my colleagues, is that we are very hesitant in the humanities, especially to talk about the truth. Yep. And if and and that really scares me, because if we're not searching for truth, what are we doing? Right? Are we searching for power? Are we searching for the good? But if we're searching for the good, are we searching for the true good or the merely apparent good? Like where? And this hesitancy or even refusal to talk about truth as the goal of the intellectual community that is the university, you know, the shared goal, the common end. Um, I think we need to speak out forcefully in favor of the truth, that this is the essence of what we're doing, right? And all this other stuff is subsidiary, right? First and foremost, we are searching for the truth. We are searching for the highest forms of knowledge, the most universal forms of knowledge. Um, I mean, that that's my vision of of the mission of a university. My guest today has been Jennifer Frey. Jennifer, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks so much for having me. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.